Speaking out against your employer's dark secrets can often be dangerous. But what if the perpetrator was not just your employer, but also the government? And what if the secret was that they were watching you? That they might already be onto the fact that you knew what they were doing was wrong? Would you commit a crime to tell the truth? Or would you keep quiet, knowing that would be the only way to stay safe? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Edward Snowden, the computer engineer for the NSA who leaked classified U.S. intelligence documents in the name of privacy and civil liberties and made himself a global target in the process. This is a story that upended government surveillance methods around the world and changed the conversation around digital privacy in the 21st century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. On August 26th, 2006, 23-year-old Edward Snowden became a CIA staffer. Technically, the newly minted telecommunications information security officer had already been working for the CIA for a year. As a systems engineer, helping maintain the agency's networks and IT security, he'd essentially been doing the same job. The only difference was that up to this point, Ed's employer had been a security contractor. Now, for a salary cut, he was officially on the CIA's payroll. That meant that, most importantly, he could be stationed abroad. He would learn tradecraft, be trained on every possible kind of CIA infrastructure and technology, and become a real spy. Even as a child growing up in Maryland, Ed was highly intelligent and a voracious learner, as long as he was interested in the subject. If he wanted to know something, he'd do everything he could to become an expert— If he didn't see the point in something, he refused to waste his time. 
This became a problem when he got mononucleosis at age 15. After missing four months of school, Ed learned he had to retake the entire year. But he refused. He wasn't going to let the normal rules hold him back. He would take whatever community college classes he wanted for credits, such as psychology, Japanese, martial arts. Then he'd do the GED exam. Besides, he had already mentally moved on from school. It was 1998, and Ed had discovered the Internet, a place where he could learn and create anything he wanted. He joined online chat communities and got into gaming, honing his skills at strategy and problem-solving. By the time he got his GED in June 2002, scoring in the 99th percentile in most subjects, Ed had become a self-taught computer engineer. A few months later, he flew through more tests to become a Microsoft-certified systems engineer. And in the process, he discovered his own ability to see patterns, read between the lines, and both literally and figuratively hack the usual way of doing things. As much as he enjoyed his online world, though, Ed wanted to take his skills into the offline world, too. Swept up in post-9-11 patriotism, Ed decided he was going to help liberate the people of Iraq. In 2004, just before he turned 21, he figured out a side door to get into the U.S. Army Special Forces. All he had to do was ace a test, his specialty. He enlisted. Less than six months later, he was back home. Having broken both his legs during training and been given an administrative discharge, frustrated at having been stymied, Ed began looking for ways to serve his country that would capitalize on his skills. But he soon discovered that his lack of formal schooling prevented him from getting most of the jobs he was interested in which was how he ended up as a security guard at a building housing NSA research spaces, where even the security guards needed security clearance. Once he had that security clearance, he became an attractive prospect to government defense contractors. They wanted highly capable computer engineers, regardless of degrees. By the end of 2005, at the age of 22, Ed landed his job managing the CIA's IT and network security. A year and a half later, in March 2007, he was a fully-fledged CIA officer, posted to Geneva, Switzerland. He'd wanted to go to Iraq or Afghanistan, hoping for the excitement of a war zone. Instead, he was working in an office mostly focused on the Swiss banking industry. Along with managing IT and network security, he also had to repair any infrastructure issues that came up, including the office's heating and air conditioning. As cool as it was to be living abroad, this wasn't quite the glamorous job Ed had imagined when he'd signed up. Soon, though, it wasn't just the disappointment of his job that started to get to him. As he got to know the inner workings of the Geneva office, he found that some of the ways the CIA operated didn't sit well with him. According to Ed, the Geneva office promoted officers based on how many assets they were able to recruit. 
This meant that ambitious agents scrambled to secure as many human sources as possible, regardless of their value to the organization. He also sometimes found their recruitment methods morally questionable. In one particular incident that stuck with him, two CIA officers identified a wealth manager whom they believed would be a valuable source. In order to recruit the banker, they got him drunk. Then they persuaded him to drive home. When he was arrested for drunk driving, one of them offered to bail him out. Now the target was in the officer's debt, creating a bond that could then be used to the officer's advantage. Though Ed cites this story as foundational to his growing disillusionment, it's worth noting that the Swiss president has since disputed its truth. Still, according to Ed, this pattern of behavior was common, and it unnerved him on multiple levels. For one, it seemed to not take into consideration the impact on the people they were targeting. He also felt it risked the United States' reputation as a force for good. And yet, for all his frustrations, Ed didn't let go of the dreams that had brought him to the CIA in the first place— He believed he could do more and make more of a difference if only his bosses would let him. When he went home in late 2008 to visit family, though, his parents brought up another problem. Though he'd been ignoring it, Ed's health seemed to be suffering. He had a bad cough that wasn't going away. His dad suspected that it was a result of inhaling silica dust while destroying classified hard drives for the CIA. Though Ed had never been one to let his parents tell him what to do, he was frustrated enough with his job in Geneva that, this time, he listened. Instead of going back to Europe, he handed in his resignation. As he recovered, Ed became more optimistic about the direction his country was going. Though he considered himself a libertarian and had supported Ron Paul in the 2008 presidential race, he was impressed by the new president. Barack Obama. Obama spoke about the importance of preserving the values of privacy and civil liberties, which resonated with Ed. After working for the CIA during President Bush's so-called War on Terror, he found himself hopeful for the new administration, which was part of why, in early 2009, the 25-year-old took a job with a different branch of U.S. intelligence. This time, he would be working for the National Security Agency, or the NSA, through the computer company Dell, another government contractor. The most attractive part of the role, though, was that it was based in Japan, a country that had captivated Ed since his teens as a gamer. Ed's excitement about the new job didn't last long. It quickly became clear that the work he'd be doing was well below his skill level. He wrote code and created processes to automate all his work, and once again found himself twiddling his thumbs. The difference, this time, was that being in an NSA office allowed him to branch out more than being a clandestine CIA officer had. Ed focused on learning, expanding his skill set, and gaining further credentials. He soon became a certified security analyst, a certified ethical hacker, a certified network defense architect. The list went on. 
He also had time to help educate his colleagues. He had discovered a knack for teaching and found he liked it. Which was why he jumped at the chance in 2010 to brief U.S. intelligence personnel in Japan on Chinese government cyber capabilities and digital self-defense. The regular instructor had dropped out at the last minute, and the conference couldn't afford to be picky. For Ed, his regular work involved protecting NSA computer networks from Chinese hackers. But he was interested to learn more. This was the perfect opportunity. To prepare, Ed stayed up all night reading top-secret reports on Chinese surveillance and cyber attack capabilities. It was unlike anything he'd ever encountered before. The Chinese government had created an impressively draconian system of control to spy on its own people and almost anyone else in the world. They had developed the ability to gather, store, and analyze the calls and emails of billions of people every day. Everyone who didn't know how to protect themselves could be under surveillance. As horrified as he was by the totalitarian mindset behind it, the computer engineer in Ed couldn't help but be impressed by the technical achievement. But as the night wore on, another thought occurred to him. How did the U.S. intelligence know all these details? Some of the information here seemed like it could only have come from the exact same kind of surveillance that the Chinese were using. Determined to get answers, Ed started poking through the NSA's systems, as far as his security credentials would allow. What he discovered disturbed him. The NSA had developed and was using the capability to use cell phones and other electronic equipment to track any given person's movements. In fact, it was recording the movements of entire cities and saving the data in case it would be useful later. Cell phones had become surveillance devices. Just as he had been in Geneva, Ed found himself disappointed in U.S. intelligence. Yet again, the abstract goal of national security had outstripped everything else without any thought of the consequences or individual rights. Ed wanted to learn more, but his security credentials didn't allow him access to much other information. Despite his clearance and the fact that he worked across the NSA's network, he was still an engineer, not an analyst. A chance to expand his responsibilities came in 2011. Ed transferred back to the D.C. area in order to be Dell's top cybersecurity and intelligence consultant at the CIA. At the age of 27, he soon found himself briefing and brainstorming with the agency's top technology officers. But this job wasn't satisfying either. Ed was good at glad-handing, but he didn't like it. He wanted to be tackling problems that actually challenged him, Plus, he couldn't forget about the questions he'd started to have in Japan. Coming back to the U.S. was also harder than he'd anticipated. Now that he knew more about government surveillance and cybersecurity, he was struck by the boom in so-called smart appliances and devices. 
His friends and family members were happily buying these products without a second thought. They were on the internet all the time, leaving their footprints and personal data all across it. They carried their new smartphones everywhere. Knowing what he knew now, Ed saw all of this as possible surveillance. Smart devices and company-owned websites could easily track all that data and monetize it. If the U.S. government did anything like the Chinese, and he suspected it did, then this could all quickly turn into government surveillance. The idea of this was so scary that Ed began to struggle. He felt alone, isolated, the only person who knew the truth, a truth that was classified. He couldn't share it even if he wanted to. By the end of 2011, even his health started to deteriorate. He began suffering badly from seizures and was diagnosed with epilepsy, forcing him to take time off work. As he languished on the couch, depressed, disaffected, and unable to work on his computer, Ed knew that something had to change. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. At the beginning of 2012, 28-year-old Edward Snowden found himself torn between his meteoric career in U.S. cyber intelligence and his overwhelming disillusionment with that same U.S. intelligence world. As his mental and physical health continued to suffer, Ed did the only thing that seemed reasonable. He took a position with Dell at an NSA facility in Hawaii. The Kunia Regional Security Operations Center was a far cry from the high-powered boardrooms of Washington, D.C. At Kunia, he was supposed to be an analyst in the National Threat Operations Center, or NTOC. His job would be to anticipate, identify, and prevent Chinese government-backed hacks of U.S. systems. He'd be doing interesting and challenging work without much immediate stress or focus on surveillance. Unfortunately, the job fell through right as he and his girlfriend were on their way to Hawaii. It had been given to a different contracting firm. The only role Dell could offer him for the moment was a significant step down. He'd essentially be going back to the work of his early career, managing Kunia's classified network servers and account access. Ed told himself that this would be a good thing. He could do this job in his sleep. Maybe this would be the reset he needed to relax and de-stress and focus on his health. 
It didn't take more than a few months living in idyllic Waipahu for Ed to realize he couldn't just switch off like that. He quickly automated the majority of his tasks, leaving him bored with nothing to do for most of his workday, and Ed wasn't built to be bored. With lots of spare time at work, Ed started to debate with his colleagues about the very cyber surveillance that many of them were working on. He argued that, in many cases, it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prevents government search and seizure of people's property. It frustrated him that well-meaning NSA employees had just been going along with the rapidly expanding surveillance state without questioning if they were doing the right thing. Ed also started to spend his free time reading documents on the servers he was taking care of. Because of his credentials and security clearance, he had access to the CUNIA facility's entire network and a large percentage of its folders, if not all of their contents. Noting his boredom and realizing that he was overqualified, Ed's supervisor had an idea. There was a project that the NSA team in Hawaii had vaguely been kicking around for a while, but it would require a very skilled engineer with high-level security clearances to do it. Ed could be that guy. The idea was that data sharing between U.S. intelligence agencies was incredibly inefficient. NSA employees regularly needed to look at information gathered by other agencies, but every agency had its own systems for storing information, and searching for something simple could take days of paperwork. The CUNIA team wanted to figure out a better way to share intel. They wanted a searchable database of all U.S. intelligence agencies, which would still only allow access to information based on a person's security clearance. Presented with a challenge that no one had yet had the time or capabilities to crack, Ed dove in. He soon realized he would need his supervisor's security credentials as well as his own in order to access as much of the information as possible. His supervisor agreed and gave Ed access. But Ed's interest wasn't solely in building the database. Building it required that he comb through folders across the network and collect information being released by agencies like the CIA and FBI. Though he wasn't supposed to be reading the documents, Ed didn't care about the rules. What he found proved that the U.S. intelligence apparatus had only continued to expand its surveillance programs. He saw a memo from the NSA director suggesting that the agency was tracking the online sexual activity of political radicals. The memo indicated that the information could be used to discredit them. All Ed could think of was the 1960s, when the FBI had supposedly attempted to use information about Martin Luther King Jr.'s affairs to encourage him to kill himself. He saw other documents showing that the NSA was routinely passing intercepted private communications to Israeli intelligence without removing identifying personal information. Americans with relatives in Israeli-occupied Palestine were having their emails and phone records handed over to a foreign power. 
Document after document revealed the NSA's overreach. Decades ago, the U.S. had decided the government wouldn't spy on its own people. But Ed was seeing plenty of evidence suggesting that it now was. One day, he'd had enough. He couldn't, in good conscience, just keep looking the other way. Between his new project, his regular work, and his access, Ed realized that he could easily just keep copies of documents for himself. And he could clean up any suspicious traces before anyone would even notice. So he did it. Just one document. Just to see if anyone noticed. No one did. And so he kept going. He took things in small batches, offloading them onto disused computers in the office. Once he'd sorted through the documents, he exported them onto SD cards and configured them with the most sophisticated encryption systems available. No one would ever be able to access the top-secret information without his help. Ed saved everything he could, both the documents that horrified him and those he didn't have time to read. He didn't have a solid plan yet for what he was going to do. He just knew that he had to do something. And then, as he was reading and collecting documents, he discovered a program called PRISM. PRISM was an initiative that essentially exploited relationships with internet companies like Google and Facebook in order to collect raw data. The NSA was scooping up the email records and browsing histories of hundreds of millions of people, both Americans and everyone else. In theory, everyone whose data was being kept was within three steps of an actual surveillance target. In reality, that included a majority of Americans. The data of anyone who wasn't actually a surveillance target was meant to have names and identifying details masked. Most of the data was never even looked at, but it was still being collected and stored for later, just in case the U.S. intelligence apparatus might need it years down the line. In other words, Millions of innocent people were having their private communications and behavior spied on, and they had no idea. Ed had to do something. People needed to know what was happening. The United States government was supposed to be accountable to the people, and yet it was treating the people like adversaries. Americans should at least be able to decide whether or not they wanted to be spied on in the name of national security. The only way to have that conversation, though, would be for the public to understand the extent of the surveillance state. And the only way for them to understand was for someone to tell them. Ed knew what he had to do with all the documents he'd been collecting. He had to get the most relevant ones out into the public sphere. He didn't know the best way to do that, but he had always been good at researching, planning, and strategizing. There was the option of just putting select documents straight out onto the Internet. One risk with that, though, was that it would only reach a relatively small portion of the population and could be easily dismissed. Ed needed the legitimacy and reach of major media sources. 
So he started to look into journalists to whom he could give the documents. The problem was that he didn't trust most mainstream news outlets, the ones with the most legitimacy and reach. He needed to find respected people he could work with and who he believed wouldn't turn him over to the government. In December 2012, Ed used an alias to reach out to journalists for the first time. One of them was a columnist and blogger for the recently opened U.S. outpost of the British newspaper The Guardian. Glenn Greenwald was a former First Amendment trial lawyer who was starting to make a name for himself as an outspoken critic of the war on terror and the surveillance state. Being cautious, Ed asked Glenn to send him an encryption key so they could communicate securely. Glenn replied that he didn't know how to do that. Ed then sent over a video with instructions for how to set up encryption. He heard nothing back. In January 2013, Ed tried again. This time, he reached out to documentary filmmaker Laura Poitras, who had made films about the U.S. occupation of Iraq and the prison at Guantanamo Bay. Just last year, she had made a short film about an NSA whistleblower. Because of her work, Laura had been a target of U.S. government surveillance and knew more about the logistics of cybersecurity. Ed began to communicate with her securely, giving her just enough information to figure out if he could trust her and if she would take him seriously. Just as they were starting to build a relationship, Ed had another job opportunity come up. Another defense contractor, Booz Allen, had a role open up for an infrastructure analyst in the National Threat Operations Center. He would be identifying foreign hackers and their attempts on U.S. government networks, following them back to their own networks, poking around their infrastructure, and proposing operations. Even though he knew his days at the NSA were numbered, Ed leapt at the opportunity. It was exactly the kind of active work he'd always been interested in. Plus, it would allow him even greater access to documents about NSA surveillance. Barely a month into his new job, in early April 2013, Laura let him know that she wanted to team up with a former Washington Post journalist named Bart Gelman for the story. Bart was possibly the country's top reporter on government surveillance and cybersecurity, and it taught her much of what she knew about the subject. He also had the contacts to research and source the story, and had a track record of taking on the U.S. intelligence apparatus in his reporting. Ed didn't like the idea of working with someone within the mainstream media— but Bart and Laura convinced him that they needed the legitimacy, reach, and fact-checking of a respected newspaper. Before he could give them the information he had collected, though, Ed knew he had to get out of the U.S. If he stayed in the country, he would likely be arrested as soon as the first story dropped, possibly sooner, if the surveillance state was already onto the journalists. If he left the U.S. for somewhere unlikely to extradite him or allow the U.S. to come after him, he could at least buy himself some time to get the information out. Ed knew he didn't want to go to China or Russia because he believed the American public would immediately see him as a traitor. 
He also didn't want to give either of those governments access to highly classified secrets. Though he had complete faith in his encryption and cybersecurity capabilities, he also wanted to be safe. After surveying his options, Ed decided on Hong Kong. It was a liberal, global city with a rich protest culture and an internet that was largely unfiltered. Despite technically being part of China, it still remained largely independent from the Chinese government. He hoped he could eventually apply for asylum somewhere like Iceland, which had strong press freedoms. Over the next few weeks, Ed carefully got his affairs in order. He emptied his bank accounts and put the cash into an old steel ammo box. He erased and encrypted his old computers. In order to protect his girlfriend, he told her nothing about what he was planning. When she left to go on a multi-day camping trip, Ed knew that it was time. On March 19, 2013, he took emergency medical leave from work, citing his epilepsy. He then went straight to the airport. He bought a ticket to Tokyo in cash and boarded a plane. Arriving in Tokyo, he bought a ticket to Hong Kong, also in cash. On May 21, 2013, Ed touched down in Hong Kong. It was time to put his plan into motion. After arriving in Hong Kong, Ed Snowden sent off his first batches of information to journalists Laura Poitras and Bart Gelman. First, he sent them a 41-page PowerPoint detailing the PRISM surveillance program. Then, he sent the encrypted data, along with encryption keys, for a trove of tens of thousands of the documents he'd taken from the NSA. He also, for the first time, gave them his name and personal information. And if they came to meet him in Hong Kong, he promised that he'd give them even more data in person. The journalists sprang into action. They went to the Washington Post's new editor, Marty Barron, who had made his name at the Boston Globe, uncovering the Catholic Church's sexual abuse scandal. He agreed to run the stories and provide legal support, giving them the green light. But it would have to be bulletproof before it went to press, which they all knew would take a while. But Ed didn't have time. Each day that went by, the risk increased that the NSA would figure out what he'd done and come after him. His only chance at protection was the story coming out. As tensions rose, the journalists waffled on coming to Hong Kong. They feared that if Ed sought asylum in a country that was hostile to the U.S., somewhere like Russia or China, then they would be held personally liable for aiding someone the government considered a traitor. Publishing information for the public good was one thing. Helping a hostile country was another. Ed's plan seemed to be unraveling before his eyes. Holed up in a room on the 10th floor of a Hong Kong hotel, he became increasingly paranoid. He didn't dare leave the room. He ordered room service for every meal. He lined his door with pillows to prevent eavesdropping. Determined to do something, he was once again in touch with Glenn Greenwald, who had finally worked out encryption. Glenn jumped on the opportunity and agreed to come to Hong Kong. 
Finally, on June 1st, 2013, nearly two weeks after Ed had left Hawaii, Glenn, Laura, and another Guardian journalist, Ewan McCaskill, got on a flight to Hong Kong. Bart stayed behind in the U.S. to continue work on the story there. Over the next few days, Ed talked the journalists through the NSA's programs. Laura filmed their conversations, spotlighting both Ed and his concerns. On June 5th, The Guardian published the first story based on Ed's information. He wasn't mentioned at all. Instead, the story revealed that the NSA was gathering the phone records of millions of U.S. Verizon customers. Verizon was even then one of the country's biggest telecom providers. The next day, The Washington Post and The Guardian both published their first stories about the PRISM program. Three days later, on June 9th, Ed went public as the whistleblower. He released a video statement explaining that he couldn't stand by and watch as the U.S. government infringed upon basic civil liberties and internet freedom. He wanted people to know the truth. The video reverberated around the world. Everyone knew who he was and what he had done. In the U.S., the story took over the public discourse. American authorities denounced Ed, claiming that he had irreparably damaged U.S. intelligence capabilities. They disputed the claim that they were spying on Americans, insisting that the system protected the information of innocent people caught up in the net. The companies mentioned in the PRISM stories scrambled to reassure the public that they weren't handing over their personal data to the government. They were victims, too, they insisted. Finally, the public was having the conversation about privacy, surveillance, and civil liberties that Ed had wanted. Less than a week after the first story came out, the U.S. Department of Justice charged him with espionage. Soon, they began negotiations with Hong Kong to extradite him. FBI Director Robert Mueller promised Congress that the Bureau would bring Ed to justice. Though Ed figured it was only a matter of time until they caught him, he wanted to give himself a fighting chance. With the help of lawyers, journalists, and activists who had taken up his cause, Ed managed to secretly get to Hong Kong airport and onto a plane. The plan was to go to Ecuador. Ecuador didn't have an extradition treaty with the U.S., and his lawyers thought it would defend his right to political asylum. All he had to do was get there without getting stopped by U.S. authorities or their allies. On June 23rd, Ed landed at Sheremetyevo International Airport in Moscow, Russia, to change planes. He had a 24-hour layover before his flight to Ecuador, and then he'd be safe. Except, upon arrival in Moscow, Ed learned that the U.S. had canceled his passport while he was en route. Without a valid passport, he couldn't board his flight to Ecuador. In fact, he couldn't even leave the airport. For the next 40 days, Ed lived in Sheremetyevo Airport. He spent most of his time applying for asylum, hoping any country would be willing to stand up to the most powerful government in the world. He applied to 27 different countries, None came through. Finally, with no other options, 
Ed was able to get temporary political asylum in Russia while they considered his application for permanent political asylum. It was a far cry from what he'd hoped for. Russia wasn't exactly known for its press freedoms, cybersecurity, or protection of civil liberties. His isolation and paranoia continued for the next few months. Apart from the journalists he communicated with, his lawyer was his only point of contact with the outside world. He lived alone and only left his home in disguise. Over time, though, Ed began to relax. He had made it clear from the beginning that he was never going to share any information with the Russian government or any other foreign government. In fact, he likely didn't even have any of the documents he'd taken from the NSA with him in Russia. Once everyone realized he was telling the truth, his situation became less precarious. The U.S. government focused on dealing with the domestic fallout, while foreign spies slowly became less interested in targeting him. Soon, Ed settled into his life in Moscow. In July 2014, a year after his arrival, his girlfriend moved there to be with him. His parents came to visit. He began to make friends and stopped wearing disguises. In 2017, he and his girlfriend got married. Throughout it all, he continued to speak out about privacy, surveillance, and cybersecurity. He continued to talk to journalists as they worked through the trove of data he'd given them. And he gave talks at universities and conferences over video links. In 2016, he became the first president of the Freedom of the Press Foundation. In the U.S., his leaks had had a dramatic effect. After the initial shock, political pressure mounted for the Obama administration to do something. The intelligence community could not continue to expand its surveillance apparatus unchecked. In response to the public outcry, President Obama announced the creation of an independent panel to review the government's surveillance methods. In December 2013, the panel made more than 40 recommendations of reforms to the NSA's programs. One of the recommendations was that the agency cease entirely its mass collection of phone call data of ordinary citizens. Another recommendation stipulated that the government not undermine encryption or commercial security software. Internet and telecom companies should be able to promise their customers privacy. Though the suggested reforms were less sweeping than activists and campaigners had hoped, Ed was vindicated. By releasing the information, he had held the government to account. By putting the information in the hands of the public, he had started the conversation. And the public had agreed with him. The NSA's surveillance was excessive. Whatever happened next would be out of his control. Over the years, as tempers cooled, Ed hoped that perhaps he would be able to return home to the United States without immediately being thrown in jail. National security and intelligence officials publicly acknowledged that his actions had facilitated a conversation that needed to happen, a conversation that likely wouldn't have happened without him leaking the information. Still, they insisted, he had harmed U.S. intelligence collection, beyond issues of domestic surveillance. 
Regardless of his intentions, that couldn't just be overlooked. And so, at the time of recording, Ed Snowden remains a resident of Russia. Whether or not he will be able to return home remains to be seen. Until then, he will no doubt continue to speak out on privacy, civil liberties, and cybersecurity issues. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Edward Snowden and the surveillance state, amongst the many sources we used, we found Snowden's book, Permanent Record, and Barton Gelman's book, Dark Mirror, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman and Ailsa Cameron. Editorial support from Mike Jempson. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez.